So I'm going to continue speaking to you about cultural agility. How many of you have found it useful? Just learning about being culturally agile. All right. Um, I'm going to speak to you about this. And next week, we're going to take a little break from this series. We're going to have Pastor Vim ministering to us a powerful faith message, uh, similar to what she did in, um, in Pretoria East the other weekend. And uh, then I will finish off my series. I'll probably then have just one more message in this series. And then my wife is also going to come back and share with you some of the things that she ministered in Cape Town. So that we're trained up and we can work effectively as ministers of the gospel with regards to praying through the various domains. But this morning I want to speak to you on decision making and how cultures differ when it comes to how we make decisions and I want to show you in the word of God biblically how we can make decisions as opposed to going by our cultural default amen I mean feel that cultures differ when it comes to how people make decisions right and I've got some sub points here there's how versus why you see some people culturally the way they make decisions as long as the why is okay it doesn't matter how we do it other people, they will be very rigid concerning how we do certain things, but they don't care about the why. Are you following this morning? All right. This is to do with the difference between principles and application. So sometimes we want to influence someone and we say, here's how you apply this particular practice. And they will stand up and they'll say, can you share with me the principle behind the application? Stuart has just returned from Germany. And the Germans, you can't go to Germany and just say to the Germans, okay, I want to sell this idea to you. And you begin to just share the idea. They can be offended. They will say to you, and they've even got a specific word for it, but they will actually say to you, what's the principle? What's the guiding principle behind that? And if you don't first start with the guiding principle, they could be offended to think, are you thinking I'm going to just believe everything you say? Amen. And so that's something that I learned recently and I want to share that with you because there are a lot of nations that are Germanic in their philosophy and in their thinking. And if we want to grow in how we influence people and if we want to sell ideas to people, we have to understand those differences. You know, when you go to the States, for example, the people from the United States are very pragmatic. And you see this manifesting in the church. If you compare the UK and the United States, for example, in the United States, you know when people talk about how when the gospel moved from nation to nation, it manifested differently, you know? <laughs> in, in some nations, the gospel looks more like an army. In other nations, it looks more like a hospital. In some nations, it looks more like a, a corporate organization. Are you hearing what I'm saying? All right. If you go to the States, you'll see that there's a very pragmatic way of doing church where people will say, you know what, as long as people are reached, it's fine. Let's do what works. And they'll do a lot of research and then voila, and we see churches growing. If you go to places like the UK, for example, you'll find that a lot of the church culture there focuses on the why first right? Oh, this is what the Bible says. Let's look at scripture and then they'll come up with a perfect model and then they'll try and outwork that, whether the church grows or not. And you'll find that when you are thinking about these things, some of you are 
leaning on one in one direction and others of you lean in another. It affects how we do church, it affects how we do business. I'm going to show you the biblical balance just now. I'm going to show you the biblical balance. You know that this is also linked to deductive thinking versus inductive thinking. And some of you would have heard of that if you've studied philosophy. There's some people who are very deductive in their thinking. When you're deductive, you start off with a premise, right? And then very often you have a second premise, and stemming from that, there's an inference. What do I mean? Well, God is a healer. That's a premise, isn't it? God is the healer. Jehovah Rapha is his name. That's a premise, right? Second premise could be um, many people are sick, right? Right? If we invite God into a situation, therefore he will heal because he's the healer. So it's deductive thinking stemming from your understanding of the word of God, stemming from your understanding of God's nature. Amen? So some people are deductive in that way, and I think it's very important to be that, especially when it comes to the word of God. Other people whose cultural default is inductive, in other words, their starting point is based on their experience. So they will start off by saying, many people are sick. And many of those people who are sick have prayed for healing and haven't been healed. Therefore, it's not always God's will to heal. That's where they all come from. Does that make sense? The deductive thinker will say, it's God's nature to heal. He is the healer. He says he'll heal us of all our diseases. Everyone who went to Jesus was healed. Therefore, I will also be healed. And if I'm not healed yet, it's just a matter of time. So I'll keep standing on that word. My practical reality will have to conform to the premise of God that I see in the scriptures. Can you see the different mindset? Let me give you another example. I'm just trying to show you this morning that there's a cultural default that we have. I'll give you another example. Can sangomas heal? Do sangomas heal? Some of you are saying no. Some of you are saying yes. And it's revealing whether you're thinking in a deductive way or an inductive way. Deductive thinking will say, God is the healer. Any spirit outside of God, therefore, cannot heal. So if someone says they were healed by a sangoma, either they were conned or tricked in thinking they were healing because the devil can't heal. And any other spirit apart from the Holy Spirit that you look for for healing must be the spirit of darkness. You're starting with a premise. For example, another premise could be there are only two kingdoms. Kingdom of darkness, kingdom of light. If you are not healed by the kingdom of light, the spirit of God, then it must have been a demonic spirit that was trying to do it. But demons can't heal because nothing good comes from the devil. Therefore, you weren't healed. Does that make sense? Inductive thinking would say, but I know so and so. And what happens, you see, with inductive thinking, you start off with, you, you, you literally start off with a specific situation and you generalize based on it. So inductive thinkers might say, I know so-and-so who went to that witch doctor over there. 
they had cancer. But after a while, the cancer left. Therefore, which doctors can also heal. That's what they would say, won't they? But you know what I find interesting? There's a lady called Fiona Desfontaine. She's got a church in Pinetown called His Church in Pinetown, right? And she used to be a spiritist, a spiritist before, she became, before she got saved many years ago. And she began to teach people about some of these things. And when she had been a spiritist, basically after she got saved, she made a list of all the people who she had apparently healed. And guess what she realized? People she had apparently healed. In other words, they went off saying they were fine, they were better. But what she found when she did research on all those people that she had apparently healed, they had ended up either dead after some time or in a worse condition. Are you hearing me this morning? You see, there are a lot of times when people are sick because of a spirit of infirmity, a demonic spirit of infirmity that causes sickness. And what happens is when they go to spirits of darkness wanting to be healed, how many of you know that if the devil gave you something, he can make it move? That's why you hear a lot of people will say, yeah, I went to that particular traditional healer. And to be honest with you guys, when I was then tested for that cancer, the cancer has gone. But then three years down the line, you hear that the person died of another disease. How many of you have heard of that before? And you, you realize, wait a minute, what is going on? Well, if the devil puts something in, he can also hide it. And he can also then give you something else. But it still stems from the spirit of sickness. And one of the ways of knowing if you've got an illness or a sickness that is linked to a demonic spirit, it's often the thing moves. And each time you go to the doctor, they say like, we can't really, we don't know what's wrong with you. And they test you for this and one moment you've got this. Next moment it's something else when you go there and the thing keeps moving around. Then you know very often it's a spirit of sickness. Amen? A spirit of infirmity. All right? So these things, this mindset affects how we do the church because some people, their mindset is very Machiavellian, meaning very much their mindset is the end will justify the means. And they'll be like, you know what? As long as we get the results, it's fine. No, the why is important. Amen. Let me give you some examples in scripture of how versus why. Romans 1 verse 13 to 15. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, how often I planned to come to you but I have been prevented from visiting until now in order that I may have a harvest among you. Just as I've had among the Gentiles, I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. So you can see that the why of what he was doing was basically to get the gospel out, right? As long as people get saved. And very often you'll see that with Paul the Apostle, the why was more important than the how. Watch this. In 1 Corinthians 9 verse 20, he says, To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. In other words, he could use different methodologies as long as the why behind what he was doing was the same. Can you see that? His goal was the gospel. Whether it's a gospel in a smart suit or a gospel in jeans or a gospel in uh, safari suits. What was important for him was the gospel and getting it out there. And he was ca culturally agile. 
He would be a certain way with the Romans, a certain way with the Jews. And he was flexible that way. And many Christians today are majoring on the minors. They're sweating the small stuff. It's interesting to see that in the verse I'm about to read to you, the why is different, yet Paul seems interested in the fact that the application is the same. The gospel is being preached. Watch this. Philippians 1 verse 15 to 18. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. So the motive isn't always good, right? But others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached and because of this I rejoice. Now this is a very interesting one. Can you see that it's almost like a bit of a turn? Because many of us, we will criticize certain pastors out there and we'll say, this guy is being dubious or this guy has got wrong motives. We'll criticize them, won't they? But when I look at Paul the Apostle, again, he focused on what's ultimately happening. Is the gospel being preached or not? Now, people will be judged based on their heart condition. So motives are important. In the book of Jeremiah, it says, I, the Lord, examine the heart all right, to judge a person concerning his ways. So motives are important. But when it comes to what we are doing, we must just rejoice that the gospel is expanding instead of trying to play God in terms of what's the why behind the what. Are you following me this morning? All right. I'm trying to show you that in scripture, we kind of like see both. And I believe that when it comes to us and God, we must make sure we're doing things with the right motives. But when it comes to observing the body of Christ, we cannot play police because we don't know someone else's heart. Amen. Just because you see a pastor and he's got an entourage behind him and he looks flamboyant. Do not be quick to judge if you don't know his heart. Amen. That's very important. And you can see with Paul the apostle, the big thing was, I'm just rejoicing because the gospel is being preached. His why was so big. As long as the gospel is being preached, I am so happy. Yes, some people are dubious characters. Yes, some people, they might not practice the same kind of moral things I practice, right? But the gospel is being preached. Amen. Now, let me ask you a question. In your culture, what's important? Is it what or how? Is it principle or is it application? In terms of your decision making, what's important to you? It's something for each one of us to reflect upon. I find it interesting that in verse 17, he says, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition. Now, they'll be judged for that. I mean, that's quite a strong thing to say. Yes, no, there's selfish ambition there, guys. No, 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 those guys are not being sincere. No, those guys are trying to stir up trouble for me while I'm in prison. So he's, he's recognizing that there are things that are not right. But you know what? He's like, I'm not going to be distracted by that. I'm going to focus on this big picture. The gospel is being preached, and I'm going to rejoice because of that. Amen. All right? Head versus heart. 
Another way in which we make decisions very often is head versus heart. Some of you are very rational and logical thinkers. So for example, before you hire someone, you want to look at their CV, you want to do a lot of assessments on the people, so you use a lot of head. And sometimes even when you're using a lot of head, the criteria you're using might even be wrong. But you think, I'm going to make an accurate decision because I'm using a lot of logic. And then some of you, you go by your gut when it comes to decision making, don't you? And you're like, eh, this person, everything, just like tick, 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 tick. But I just didn't feel right about it. Now some of you can't identify with that because you're scared. You're scared of going by gut feel judgment because you're like, eh, I've been conned before. The heart is deceitful. Amen? Think about it. When it comes to spousal selection, I don't know how many of you are there, that life stage. When it comes to spousal selection, we know a lot of people go very much with heart, don't they? And we go by head when we're observing them and we're like, hey, was she thinking straight when she made that decision? We go, we go by head when we're judging someone, but when they're in the situation, they're just flowing with a lot of heart. Now, how many of you know that culturally, cultures differ in their emphases? If you, if you look at places like France, places like the UK, US, right? They were very influenced by empirical data. They were very influenced philosophically by you go by what the facts say. They were influenced philosophically by Plato, and we say they're Platonic in their thinking. But you'll find that in countries like Germany, there's also an interesting dynamic because the Germans on the surface seem to be very analytical, efficient, and so on. But the, German, the, the continental countries, your, um, Spain, uh, Greece, and some of the Germanic nations, they were very influenced by certain biblical thinkers, right? Certain theologians. So you'll find that they've got a strong moral view concerning certain things in terms of what's right and what's wrong. Now ask yourself, culturally, what is my leaning? Does it lean on heart decision making based on what I'm feeling about a particular thing? Or does it lean towards logical, rational, and analytical? Right? Sometimes this actually affects how you do business. There was a particular guy, he worked for Nestle, and uh, he was a, a German-speaking Swiss. And he went through to China, and he was doing some negotiations with them, and they were taking so long. And you know, he wanted it to be quick. He wanted everything to just happen. And he learned a particular principle there, and the Chinese call it guanzi, right? And it basically speaks of heart connection. And so for them, the way they make decisions around negotiation is let's spend time together first. Let's build a relationship. Let's build chemistry. And then afterwards, the negotiation will just happen naturally because the trust has been built. Amen? So some people make decisions based on what they sense in their heart and also heart connection. Others just on analysis. And that's why some of you, when you do business with the West, you get frustrated because it's like the people need a report for everything. A report of the report of the report. I don't know if you're feeling me there. Right? I've had situations where they'll then say, oh, remember that thing we discussed, Paul? Yeah, can you give us a report, please? And it has to be a detailed one. It's almost like there's that mindset of if it's not in writing, it doesn't exist. 
Why? Head decision making. We'll see what was written down. Yet many of us operate from a heart's level. So which is better? Head, heart, or both? I believe that when you're culturally agile, you're able to make decisions using different ways of thinking. You see, on the one extreme, you have gut feel judgment. A lot of people are wired that way. Other people are strong on possibility thinking. Let's dream what's possible. If you believe it and you can see it and you can dream it, it will happen. You can receive it. All right? Other people function based on systems thinking. What is the broader ramification of this decision? So they don't make decisions in isolation. They look at everything else. Some people don't. Other people look at evidence-based thinking. Any decision they make, let's look at the evidence. Others focus on scenario planning. Let's first look at the various options and the scenarios. And then other people look at logical, analytical thinking. They're very analytical. Can you see that continuum there that's taking place? So I want to ask you a question. Think about some of the major decisions you've made recently. How do you go by it? If you're a logical, analytical thinker, do you end up so boxed in that world that you never trust your gut? And if you're that person who makes decisions based on heart only, do you just go with what you're feeling and what you're sensing at the moment and you never think through it analytically? Think about it. And what's important is to actually know what your strengths are and your weaknesses are. And if you're just a gut person, hang around some people who will help you with the analytical side. Where you ask for their opinion and you say to them, guys, what do you think? And they might look at the scenarios. Because you see, heart people say, I'm just sensing it, guys. 2018 is the year. I'm, I'm going to reach my targets. And then the analytical guys will look at you and they'll say, let's see the numbers because the numbers don't lie. And then they'll say, okay, you, you, you seem to be a quarter, doing a quarter, 25% of where you were at last year. So for this year to be really great for you, you're going to really have to have a miracle year end, second half of the year. So what you are sensing and feeling, when we look at the numbers, it doesn't tally. Now some people say, yeah, but Paul, you know what, we must just faith it. It's fine to faith it, but it's also important to be honest about where exactly you are right now. Amen? And then to faith it in the context of knowing what, what's happening in the material world. And then you'll pray accurate prayers to say, God, get me out of this. Instead of living in this world where it's like, as long as I'm happy, I'm fine. You know those people who are in denial about their situation? What's your leaning this morning? What's your leaning this morning? So... Let me show you in scripture when it comes to selection of leaders. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So when you look at someone's CV, how much heart goes into it? Because you can't see someone's heart by looking at their CV. Amen? So can you see that when it comes to making decisions about people, decisions about who you'll work with, who you won't work with, you have to have a prophetic sense of where to go. 
It's not this empirical data thing. You see, if he was to only go by what he saw with his eyes, he would have made a wrong decision. All right? But now look at a bit of head here. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 to 12. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be, and then there are very practical requirements. Now how many of you know that if you're selecting people to become pastors and you're raising them up, it's important not to just be like, ah, I like Stuart Bishop. Stuart is a nice guy. I have to balance that chemistry I have with Stuart with also looking at some of these things, which is head, regardless of how much I like him. Does that make sense? I have to balance what I feel in my heart when I'm with Tafi with what the word also says. And that's the head portion. That's where I'm now going with my head. It says, now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. You know that there are a lot of people in church circles where they're really brilliant when it comes to a lot of things, but they love money. And you have to be able to detect that. You have to be able to see, is there a spirit of greed here? Right? He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert. Okay? So can you see that you can have someone who's just got saved yesterday, and now you're thinking, okay, do we get them ordained or not? Do we raise them up as an elder in a church or not? But then this disqualifies them. Because it says here, to be an overseer, you must not be a recent convert. So there's some people who wear everything you can tick, but they're still young in the Lord. And so you still have to give them time. Can you see that? That's head. That's nothing to do with emotions and how you feel about the person and their potential. Amen? All right? Look, he must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited. Some people end up conceited. What does the word conceit mean? Conceit is when you think of yourself more highly than you ought. That's what it means, right? Conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. So sometimes when we hold people back ministerially, people might think like, you're holding me back, you're limiting me, right? I remember having a conversation with someone and they were saying, yeah, but I think, you know, Pastor Paul, it wasn't in this church, you know, but it was a certain situation and this person felt like I was limiting them, right? But you see, sometimes we do that because we care about people. It says otherwise they'll fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, a deacon. Now, what is a deacon? The word deacon means appointed servant. So in this church, even though we don't use that term deacon because it's a transliteration from the Greek. You understand what I mean by transliteration, right? We should just say an appointed servant. So typically, a deacon would be 
for example, someone like Sunera heading up children's ministry, that's a deacon, right? She's, she's been appointed to serve in that space. Does that make sense? Okay, it's typically a head of department, a head of a particular area. So what does it say about deacons? A deacon, in the same way deacons are worthy, are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested. You see, some people get tested. Sometimes we test people in ministry without them even knowing they're being tested. Otherwise, we like at school. You know when you're at school, what would you say? You'd say to your teacher, does it count? And then you only work hard when it counts. So it's important to test people even when they don't know that they're being tested. Amen? All right? So it says they must first be tested. They must first be tested. And then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. So my question to you is, as I read these things, it's very head. Despite the fact that we might like each other. Have you been tested and found wanting? Because it says here, if there's nothing against them, then let them serve as deacons. Right? In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect. How many of you women here are worthy of respect? Okay. Not malicious talkers. Some women and men disqualify themselves because they're malicious talkers. But temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Now, why am I saying all of this? You will go to certain nations and you'll find that they will recruit someone because of heart, a heart decision. But you might be feeling like, ah, but this person doesn't tick all the boxes. I can't tick all the boxes there. How will you now deal with them in business, especially if you're working for a multinational? Amen? Just remember that in some cultures, they make decisions based on heart. They felt this person's potential and they made that decision. You will go to other nations where you're like offended because you're like, you know what? I'm just feeling this person and people aren't believing in this person's dream. But when it comes to that tick box in terms of qualification, the person is found wanting. It's important for us to have that flexibility of understanding that in different places, people's leaning is different. And I think I've just shown you in scripture where there's a head logical, rational way of qualifying someone. And then there's another one where this prophet just sees prophetically that, oh, David is the person. Amen. All right. And they're both in the word of God. I like to work with both. Amen. All right. And then the third one I want to look at this morning is long-term thinking versus short-term thinking. Some of you make decisions based on short-term some of you here make decisions based on long term. Do you know that very often if you're arguing with your spouse, for example, the argument can go on and on and on because of short term thinking. Why do I say that? Well, if you find yourself in a situation where you just want to win the argument at all costs, how many of you know that that's short term thinking? That's very short term thinking. 
Because you might win the argument but lose the war. And how many of you know that if you leave an argument with your spouse feeling like, yay, I won, I'm the superior person, and they feel insignificant as a person, how many of you know that because you are one flesh, you haven't actually won? You've only won if you've both won. Amen? You only win in marriage when you're both winning. If you are one up on your spouse and you feel it boosts you and yay, you've won the argument, you haven't actually won. You see, when you're a long-term thinker, it affects all of life, ladies and gentlemen. It affects everything in life. And what I find amazing is what I see in scripture in terms of the balance of long-term and short-term thinking. Let's talk about it in terms of culture. The Chinese, they think in centuries. We know that, right? I think I've shared that with you before. One of my sister-in-laws, one of my wife's sisters, she was a, a professional golfer. She won a particular tournament in China. I remember coming back and she was saying to me, the Chinese think in centuries, Paul. He said, you see these guys building highways, going to certain cities and so on, building up new buildings in certain cities, and you're wondering why are they doing it? Because they know that in the next 20 years, people will be here. And you hardly see any vehicles on some of the highways. Whereas you all know what I'm talking about here in South Africa, what happens? If you're, those of you familiar with Joburg, if you think of that area, that North Riding area, Douglas Dale, Four Ways, some of you live there, Ishe, and so on. Some of you live there, Kotso, right? Have you noticed that they've built up a lot of new complexes, new estates, but has the road system changed? And what's the traffic like? Like just getting onto the highway. Very difficult. Do you know why? I'm telling you right now, it's because our, our cultural default on the African continent, we think very short term. In fact, how we think, it's like someone who's on the how train. You know when you're on the how train, you're going to Santon. And so you're facing, you're, you're going to Santon, right? But you're, face, you're still facing back in Pretoria. You know what I'm talking about? That's how we think. And this is, this is not me thumb sucking, hey? This is based on research. This is based on research. On the African continent, we tend to focus on the present and the past. And all you need to do to confirm this is just have a look at the political narrative. Just look at any political document and so on and tell me where the focus is. How much of it is focused on building into the future? You know what the Chinese are doing? They literally will say, let's set up this new academy right now because we need artisans that are raised up in this area and we want them to be attracted to this particular trade and we know that we're going to need this trade in the next 50 years. So we now want to build academies now training up the people that way. That's how they're thinking. I'm going to ask you a question. How long-term do you think? How long-term do you think? Because it affects all sorts of things. It affects how you save. It affects all sorts of things. Because if your focus is just on the present, if your focus is hedonistic, in other words, you make decisions based on the pleasure of the moment, you'll struggle in five years' time. And you'll be like, what happened? Because you weren't thinking about the future. It will affect the type of business you go into. And I'm telling you right now, we have a cultural default. There's a certain way we are wired to think. 
When you try to bring solutions in the workplace, are you just focusing on blaming people concerning what they did in the past? Or are you focused on shaping for the future? One of the biggest keys in conflict resolution in any, in any relationship is to focus on solutions, not over-analyzing the problems and you did this, but you did this, and five years ago you did that, and ten years ago you did this. You won't get anywhere with that type of thinking. Amen? Now, we're not limited by our culture. I know a black South African woman. I think she's originally from somewhere in the northwest of this country. And she literally went to some investors with a 100-year plan. They were confused. She, she said they were shocked. She's an entrepreneur. She's a serial entrepreneur. And she went to some investors and says, here's my 100-year plan. I want to show you in scripture the balance between long-term and short-term because we actually see both in scripture. In Matthew chapter 6 verse 34, look what Jesus says. He says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. Do you know what this says to me? He doesn't say, don't think about tomorrow. You see, Jesus wants us to dream about the future. He wants us to shape the future. He wants us to pray into our future. He wants us to be long-term thinkers. He just doesn't want us to worry about it. Do you know why some people worry about the future? They haven't made a plan for it. You see, if you, I'm not worried about my kids' university. I'm not worried about their university situation. I've made a plan for it. Amen? So, it, and it's not easy for people to do this. Because, so, we, for the last number of years, we've been putting aside money, putting aside money, putting aside money for their university. And, it, and think about it, it's three boys, quite close in age, our kids are 19 months and 20 months, eh? Between each other. And I remember my financial advisor some years ago just saying, Paul, you don't want to be in the situation I'm in this year. Where I thought my one son would have finished university, but he had to repeat his final year. And then now what happened was his kids were spaced out quite a bit. Now what's happened is I've got two kids at university at the same time because the other one has now started. And then now the university is saying we want 80,000 upfront. Not that many people have got, you know, spare 80,000 rand just lying around there. Amen? And I took his advice and I'm glad I did so. And the type of investment it was, it was a it's a type of investment where at any time if I want to take it, I can take it. And let me tell you right now, sometimes the temptation is there. Fortunately, I've got a good wife who says to me, mm-mm, mm-mm. Because I'm kind of like, come on, you know? <laughs> When you see it building up, building up. But you know what? Because of it, I'm not worried about when they go to university. Like, how will we afford it? Amen? But you see, some people will focus just on the now. And then they'll worry about the future because they're not making a plan for the future. And they're not willing to adjust their lifestyle. Now, because of the future. Are you following this morning? All right? Jesus says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, 
for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You know what Jesus is, is saying here? He's basically saying that be fully present today. Be fully present today and take care of today and don't worry about tomorrow, but shape your future. Amen. When you worry too much about the future, it affects your productivity today. Worry becomes poison. It will work out. It will be fine. You can't control it. Look at Jesus in his futuristic thinking. He's not worrying, but he's thinking futuristically. Look what he says in John 17, verse 19 to 20. He says, for them, he's praying, for them I sanctify myself, so that they too may be sanctified by the truth. I am not asking on behalf of them alone, but, I, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their message. Jesus is praying for the second generation of disciples. He's not just praying for his disciples, he's praying for his disciples' disciples. Isn't that powerful? How many of you know that that's long-term thinking? That's long-term thinking. He's thinking about the future. How many of you pray for the people you are mentoring and discipling? Raise your hand. Okay, that's one of the marks of a good discipler. You pray for the people you're discipling. But Jesus didn't just leave it there. Jesus is saying, you know what, as I mentor this individual, as I've discipled these individuals, Father, I know they're going to speak to other people. I'm praying for them also. Isn't that powerful? Imagine if I'm praying right now, Lord, I pray for this congregation you've entrusted me with. I pray for their lives, Almighty God. But I also know, God, that they're going to reach out people in the next, reach out to people in the next number of years. I'm now going to prophesy over those people they're going to reach out to. And I begin to prophesy over people I don't know. That's long-term thinking. How many of you know that God is multi-generational? His very nature is multi-generational. In Exodus chapter 3 verse 15, God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all the generations. He was not just the God of Abraham. He was also the God of Isaac and Jacob. Isn't that powerful? Do you know that there's certain things God has placed in you that aren't primarily for you? You're just the steward of those things. These are things that you are going to deposit into other people one day. Your children and your children's children. I said to my wife the one time, I said, my love, the gifts God has given you because she's gifted in multiple areas and sometimes she's had to try to work out what should I focus on in this season. Amen? And I've said to her, you know what I'm picking up in the spirit? I'm seeing that some of the things God has placed inside of you, they're not your primary gifting and they're not your primary calling, but he's given them to you because they will be the primary calling of one of our kids. 
You see, sometimes God gives you the ability to teach on a particular subject, not because it's your primary calling, but he's given you that thing so you can activate other people. I'm not an economist, but I can teach on a biblical view of economics, and some of you who are economists will catch on to that, and you'll run with that. And you'll know way more about it than I do, but I was the catalyst, and God gave me the revelation, not primarily for myself, but for you. Amen? It's important to know how has God primarily gifted you because very often he gives you certain gifts that are primary, some that are secondary, but the secondary ones is so that you can impart something to the next generation. Amen. Long-term thinking. 2 Timothy 2 verse 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. So Paul is speaking to Timothy. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to who? To faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Do you know how many generations we're actually seeing there? Generations of disciples? Four generations. There's Paul, there's Timothy, and Timothy is being instructed to pass this stuff on to people who can also teach others. That's four generations. And how many of you know that that fourth generation might have even been a generation that was not yet born? Might have even been a generation of little kids that have not yet grown up. But Paul here is thinking of generations. Amen? You see, if our mindset today is a mindset of, I just want to educate my kids so they can look after me when I'm old, then we're not thinking long term. You know what's happening in South Africa right now? I was speaking to someone who's a wealth coach and she was explaining something interesting to me. She was saying to me, you know what, Paul, I'm dealing with a lot of influential black South African people and the pattern I'm seeing is interesting. A lot of them didn't grow up with money. So now when they're parenting their children, they're doing what we call compensation parenting. You know, when you want your kids to have everything you didn't have. So they start to spoil their kids. So can you see what happens? Those kids grow up not knowing how to manage money. They grow up not knowing how to actually maintain, how to grow the wealth of the family. And guess what ends up happening in the fourth generation? No wealth. It's squandered. And you can see it happening, can't you? You can see it from what you read about in the papers. It's, it's, it's a wonderful exception when you hear good stories about some of these famous people's kids, when you hear that this guy is so clued up and is actually growing and expanding his father's empire. One of the things we've seen on the African continent is that a lot of businesses are not passing on to the second and third generation. But look at the Jewish people. A lot of the wealth in this nation is in the hands of the Jewish people. And you know that when they take their kids through bar mitzvah, when the kids are only 13 years of age, firstly, they don't have the concept of teenager. It's not really, teenager is not really a biblical concept, right? It's something that was fabricated by society. And we say, look at my teen. And we've got these expectations that your teen will rebel. Your teen will do this. They don't have to. I didn't rebel as a teenager. Many of you didn't. But somehow we've got this thing of like teens then, yeah, now they're this age, eh, puberty, eh, we're going to see it here. Eh. And then we, parents exchange notes 
And they almost try to show off about, your teen is not as bad as my teen. The rebellion in your household is not as bad, is not as, bad as in my household. No. I refuse that for my sons. They will know God from a young age. They'll walk in righteousness and holiness from a young age. And you see what the Jewish people have learned, and we see this in scripture, when this child is 13, they're then called a hulos. It's a different word in the Hebrew for son. It basically is speaking of full inheritance. Full inheritance. You know in the Hebrew they've got different words, hey? For child. Little baby, they talk about nepios, right? I don't know if that's where we get the word nappy from. I always find that funny, you know? They've got different words, right? And when that child is a son and an heir, it's called a hulos, means son. And that's why sometimes you look at these Jewish kids and you think, that's an arrogant guy. He's quite conceited and he's only 15 and he's sounding very knowledgeable and he's telling everyone what to do. That's been bred into that child from a young age because from 13, they're already learning how to run the father's business. Are you hearing me? My kids have been on my case saying, dad, 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 is it legal for a child to, have, to own their own business? It's like they're desperate to just grow up. Dad, what is it like being an adult? But dad, why can't we start it now? You can't do that type of business now because you have to be over 18. You can't do this now because you, you have to think through it. You have to study for it. You have to, and sometimes we as the parents end up limiting them. Long-term thinking, and we see it throughout scripture. As biblical Christians, we need to be able to think long-term whilst being fully present today. Jesus was thinking long-term and multi-generationally when he prayed. So he was communicating that our relationship with the future must not be filled with worry, but must be future-minded when we are praying. Amen. I'm going to stop there today. Maybe you are here and your thinking has been skewed. You haven't been deductive in your understanding of the word of God. There are a lot of things you've just gone by. So and so had this experience. This other person had that experience. But it's not based on the word of God. Or maybe you felt the Holy Spirit speaking to you. When it came to long-term thinking versus short-term, maybe you're that person whose relationship with the future, you just worry about it only. And God is saying today has enough worries of its own. Or maybe you're that person who's hedonistic in their thinking. You're just thinking of the pleasure of now. But you're not thinking of the generations. And you're saying, Pastor, I want to be that person who really, really imparts to my children at a young age because I'm thinking of where they're going to go in the future. Maybe you're in a space this morning where you've just been thinking very much with your head and you haven't been open to sensing things prophetically. Or maybe you're at the other extreme where you just go by heart. And you haven't been willing to receive any input that's very much head input. I don't know what space you are in today. But if you want to respond to this message saying, Jesus, help me. I want to pray with you this morning. Just stand where you are. If the Lord has spoken to you and you're saying, there are things that resonate with me here that I need to think about. 
You see, some of you don't pray big prayers because the prayers you are praying are just for the now. But there are big prayers we can pray as we think about 50 years time. There are big prayers we can pray when we think about this nation 50 years time. Father, you see the response in the hearts of your people today. Lord, we ask this morning that you would make our perception right. You would make our outlook right. You would make the way we process information and make decisions right. We open our hearts to you, Lord God, that we'll be those who think in terms of generations. We thank you, Father, that you're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We thank you, Father God, that generations that come from us can know the living God, can love the living God. Father God, we pray that you would help us as we make disciples to not just pray for our disciples, but for our disciples' disciples. Father, we pray that you would help us this morning, Lord, that we don't just make decisions based on head, but also heart. That we don't just make decisions based on heart, but also head. That, Lord, we are balanced biblically. Father, even as your people respond to you this morning, as they seek your face, I join my faith to theirs. And I say that this is your portion, a life full of faith, a life knowing God, a life being able to make strong decisions that will shape your future. Right now, I rebuke worry from your life. Right now, I rebuke anxiety from your life. Right now, I rebuke the spirit of fear from you. Right now, I release you to new dimensions in Christ. Receive your portion in God. Receive fullness from heaven today. Father, I pray for those who've had the mindset that says the end justifies the means. I pray for those who've been involved in going to witch doctors and traditional healers and fortune tellers thinking that everything is fine. I break every covenant that you have made with darkness. I break its power over you in the mighty name of Jesus. We renounce it in Jesus' name and we choose to put our hope in God. We choose to put our confidence in God. And we say, Lord, we look to you. You alone are our answer. Father, I pray for women and men who are single and who are not too sure about who to get married to, who to get into a relationship with. I pray, Father, that they would not just go by heart, but would also go by head. I pray, Father, that you may place people around them, wise counsel, to help them in their decision making. Father, I pray for us now as we make decisions concerning business partners that we would not be rushed into anything, Lord God, but we would make decisions based on your word and your leading. I bless each and every person here. You are blessed with the Father's blessing. You are blessed with favor. You are blessed to prosper. You are blessed to think the very thoughts of God. 
You are blessed with peace. You are blessed with shalom. You are blessed to flourish. You are blessed with good health. His name is Jehovah Rapha. He is the Lord that heals. This is your portion. This is your portion. Father, let your people go out with joy and be led forth with peace. Let your people go out with the spirit of boldness this week. We pray this in Jesus name. And the people of God said, "Amen and amen." God bless you as you go today. Go and love people.